0: Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians 2, um, verses 14 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, for these truths. We ask now that you would um, open our minds and our hearts, that we would be humble, that we would be faithful, um, as as Mark teaches, that he would be faithful to the word, and that we would be um, discerning and listening uh, to your spirit's leading. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Well, over the past couple weeks, Paul has been making a clear distinction between those who follow the wisdom of man and those who follow the wisdom of God. That the wisdom of God is the gospel message that only faith in Christ and trust in his shed blood will save us from the wrath of God for our sins. And the wisdom of man is that the rejection of that gospel message and trusting in one's own efforts for salvation. <clears throat> and Paul is reminding the church in Corinth that their, that their salvation by the grace of God through faith in Christ was only possible because the Spirit of God taught and revealed the truths of God to them. They have the Spirit, and so they believe and they hear the gospel, they understand the gospel, they know <clears throat> they know the gospel but those who have the wisdom of man do not have the spirit within them and so they it makes no sense to them and in our verses this morning he uses Paul uses two other phrases he he's calls uh the one the natural person and the other the spiritual person and his desire in doing this is not to simply give another example but actually to reinforce their true identity in their minds because he's about to get real with them. He's about to call them out on some things. In chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them people of the flesh. And that's a, a phrase that's it's not meant to be good, <laughs> to say the least. It's a, it's a phrase that's going to hit them hard because, because of what he says in the passage this morning that ultimately he's asking the church in these three verses, what, through what lens are you viewing life? Through the lens of the natural person, the flesh, the world, or through the lens of the spiritual person, the, the Spirit of God? And so Paul, when he speaks of the natural person, he gives a clear definition in verse 14. He says, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God." What are the things of the Spirit of God? Well, as I like to say, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text. Do you remember me saying that? I've said that probably a couple months ago. So if you're looking at a text, a text without the context of what's going on around it is a pretext to then make the text say whatever you want. Well, I think it says this or I think it says that. Well, what does the context say? So if we look at the context of these verses, the surrounding verses, Paul uses a similar phrase in verse 12 where he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And what are these three things? We talked about it last week. They're the truths of God, more specifically the gospel message, that salvation is through Christ alone. And so to bring it back to verse 14... The natural person does not accept the gospel message. Why? Because it's folly to him. The gospel message is foolish or literally stupid. Stupid to the natural person. Now, why they're asking this? Why would God do such a thing with the gospel message? Why would he send his son to pay the penalty for my sins? Why would he hold my sins against me anyway? It's all foolishness. It's all dumb. It's ridiculous, but the natural person isn't just unable to accept the gospel, he is also unable to understand the gospel. Now, one of the things I wanted to do, my, my youngest, Levi, is sick today, and um, he knows a little bit more German than I, was, I do, and so I was going to have Albert come up, he was going to speak, Albert was going to interpret, because I don't know what my son was saying in German. They say, so just imagine somebody's up here and they're speaking a foreign language and you don't understand what they're saying. What do you need? You need a translator. Hence, the wonderful Albert would come up and he would translate exactly what my son was saying so that we could all understand what is being said. So when a natural person hears the gospel, it's as if he's hearing a foreign language with no one there to interpret. He's unable to understand the gospel message because the gospel message According to Paul's words, according to the to to First Corinthians, the gospel message is spiritually discerned. When they attempt to examine the points of the gospel, that's what discernment means. You're examining it. When you exa- when they examine the points of the gospel, even when they are told specifically the whats and whys and hows of the gospel, it's all gobbledygook to them. That's a very strong theological term, gobbledygook. It makes absolutely no sense. Why? Because they're not spiritual. They don't have the Spirit of God in them to interpret for them, to teach them the things of God. But the spiritual person is different. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself judged by no one. What things are being judged? And why is the spiritual person himself judged by no one? Well, the Paul... The word Paul uses here for judge in verse 15 is the same word that he uses for discerned in verse 14. To judge is to examine, to question the evidence in order to pass a judgment. And so in the case of the natural person, he does not understand the things of the spirit because they must be discerned or examined or questioned or judged with a spiritual lens But the spiritual person judges all things. Now here's that word again, things. He judges all things. Well, what does does that mean? What are these things? Well, they are the things of the Spirit, the gospel message. And so the spiritual person discerns or examines the gospel message and believes. But then there's that phrase, but is himself judged by no one. Now, I am, how do I say this, I I am going to completely go against my seminary preaching professor who said that when you come up front, you need to know everything there is to know about this passage, and if you don't, then you need to act like it, which didn't really sit well, well with me at the time, and since I have not been known to be one to follow my seminary professors, i have to tell you i have spent all week studying and praying through this verse and i still find it difficult to understand paul makes a little change in what's being judged from the gospel message they understand the gospel as they are examining the gospel message to one who believes the gospel message and so the person judges or examines the gospel message and believes That makes perfect sense. We've been talking about that. But no one is able to spiritually judge or examine the spiritual person. What is Paul trying to get at here? So my hope in this is that this is clearer than mud for us when we uh, walk away from here. (laughs) Because because it is a difficult passage to understand, I think what I want to do is I want to work through um, what might be helpful is to, is to go to the why is that spiritual person um, not judged by anyone, judged by no one. Um, and he does that in the next, in the next verse. Why, why is the spiritual person judged by no one? And then we'll come back to the difficult part, okay? So just bear with me. Paul writes, verse 16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? So that's, that's the reason why. So, no, no. the spiritual, ju- spiritual person is judged by no one. Why? Because who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? This is a quote from, that Paul has from the prophet Isaiah, and he's done this in the past. So we need to go back to Isaiah to understand what is, why does Paul quote this here? Why do, he's trying to help us understand. Now, the Corinthians, I think, understood we're not in that culture. We're not in that context. We don't know the details of it. And so we're, we got to strive and kind of work through this piece by piece. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. And if you have your Bible or your Bible app, I think this is really important to turn with me to actually see it so that you can look at the verses and maybe even mark them up if you need to. So, <clears throat> excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 40, I'm going to read verses. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14, but I want to read 9 through 11 first, explain them a little bit in general. And then we're going to go through 14, uh, 12 through 14. And I'm hoping my hope is that this will help us better understand what is Paul trying to say through this. So Isaiah chapter 40 verses 9 through 11. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Oh, there's good news. What's the good news is the gospel. That's the New Testament word for the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with you and his recompense before you. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So God in this passage, in general, what he's saying is that I will save my people. I will shepherd my people. I will gather them up. I will tend to my flock. I will take care of them. These are the same people who, rebelled against him. And they are soon at this time in Isaiah, they're, they're about to be taken into Babylon for their rebellion against God. And yet God is saying, I will save you. But why would God do such a thing? Why would he save such a rebellious people? Well, he answers it in verse 12 and in the passage, which is, this isn't my favorite passage, but, but what he says here. Is the most frustrating and awesome thing about being a believer, okay? So let's read twelve through fourteen. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what or what man can show him his counsel? So that's our verse from 1 Corinthians, whom did he consult and who, did he, who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What, what is trying, Isaiah is saying here or what God is saying through Isaiah is who can comp- comprehend God's plan of salvation for Israel? And the answer is no one. He says, I'm going to save his people. And they ask, why would you do such a thing? And he says, because I'm God. I am am the creator of the world. Who can give me counsel? Who knows my mind? Who can tell me what to do? I am choosing to save my people Israel because that's who I am. See how it's like the most awesome thing as a believer? My God makes decisions because he's God and he can, But what's frustrating is we don't need to know the answer why. Why does God save his people? Who can understand his ways? Why would he take such an adulterous people and bring them back to his presence? Who can understand? Nobody can. No one can but God. And so, to bring it back to 1 Corinthians 2.16, who is able to comprehend, who is able to understand God's plan of salvation through Christ crucified on the cross? Because if you go back to that passage and his quotation, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And in context, it's about salvation. Who can understand why God would bring us a rebellious people, to him and save us by sending his son to die for our sins on the cross? Who is able to understand why he would do such a thing? And we would expect the same answer as in Isaiah, no one. But then there's that awesome word, one of the most powerful words in scripture, but, but, but. We have the mind of Christ. So, we, the spiritual people, Paul, Apollos, the teachers, the Christian, uh, Corinthian believers, us today, we have the mind of Christ. Those who are spiritual no longer have the mind of the world. We have the mind of Christ. And He makes a, 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 a slight change. In verse 16, he says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord? And then he says, but we have the mind of Christ, literally the mindset of Christ, meaning that the Christian thinks as Christ thinks, which is as the Lord thinks because the Father and the Son are one. They have the same mind. Remember in the last passage, the Spirit knows the things of God. He's making a, a trinitary argument here. We have the mind of Christ, and so because we have the mind of Christ, we have the mind of the Lord. See, Christ's whole purpose for coming to earth was to glorify his Father by willingly sacrificing himself upon the cross to pay the debt for our sins. His life, his words, his actions, his thoughts, his prayers, they were all done with that singular mindset. And Paul, follow christ's example when he tells the corinthians in chapter 2 verse 2 he says for i decided to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified the natural person the unbeliever sees the world through the lens of the world's truths and wisdom but the spiritual person sees the world through the lens of the cross because that was the mindset of christ And the believers in Corinth had lost that mindset. They were still believers. They hadn't lost their salvation. But Paul's opening words of chapter 3 are sharp. They're a sharp rebuke that through their divisions, they were acting as if they were people of the flesh, acting as natural people. They were judging others, including Paul and Apollos, through the lens of the world. Remember, they—they, they, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow, follow Christ. They were stuck on the preference. They, they saw the messenger, not the message. They were stuck on their own preferences and what they wanted. So they were judging these, these teachers through a worldly lens and not through a gospel lens, not through the lens of Christ. Each one of those teachers was teaching the truth, the same truth, and they were missing it. They were stuck on their own preferences. And so Paul is saying, stop looking through that lens. So to go back to the difficult bit, (laughs) as spiritual people, the church should recognize that Paul's teaching and the life that he lived, now this is the Corinthian church I'm talking about, the Corinthian church should recognize that Paul's teachings and the life that he lived among them Point them to Christ, pointed them to Christ and to Him crucified. And when Paul says that the spiritual person is judged by no one, he's not prohibiting judgments of other people, you know, that that he and his teachings are above examination. That would go against a lot of his other teaching. Take the Bereans. He welcomed the Bereans. He taught, he taught to them, and they went back to scripture and said, Is this really true? He's saying, what he is saying is that no one can judge the spiritual person except the Lord. For who has understood the mind of the Lord? Well, only the Lord and those who are now saved by Christ, who have the indwelling Holy Spirit within them. If the church, he's saying to them, the the Corinthian church were true believers, which they are, then they would be able to see that Paul's message is the truth, that the gospel message he spoke was from God, Because they are of God. They have the mindset of Christ. And this makes Paul's rebuke of them even more powerful. The Corinthian church has the mind of Christ, but their divisions over the teaching styles of Paul and Apollos were spiritually infantile. They were acting like spiritual babies, They should be more spiritually mature, says Paul. And Paul should be teaching them spiritual stake, if you want to use that phrase. But their judgments and their divisions tell Paul that he needs to continue to give them spiritual milk. You ain't ready for the stake. You're not ready for the deeper things yet because you are still acting like the natural person. You're still acting like an unbeliever. Stop it. You are of Christ. And so when you make judgments, you make judgments based off of that mindset of Christ, which is the cross. So then you bring it to us today. Okay, so how dare you call me an infantile believer? Well, I don't know if you are or not. Maybe you are. Maybe you needed to hear that. But we need to examine our own hearts. We need to, to, to not look to each other right now. Just look at your own heart. If you are a believer, if we are believers in Christ, then we too have the mindset of Christ. We have the Spirit within us. He is teaching us the things of God, the mind of God, what He desires. And we are to see our lives and the world around us through the lens of the gospel message. And so here's a a bunch of questions examining your own heart How do we view our sin? Even as believers, when we sin, when we fall, do we recognize that though Christ no longer holds our sin against us because he's fully forgiven us of our sins, past, present, and future, and when we sin as believers, we don't lose our salvation, God doesn't walk away from us. He says, no one will ever take take you out of my hand. But when we view our sin, when we see our sin, do we see that that was the sin that made it necessary for Christ to die upon the cross? And if we look at our sin through the eyes of the gospel, what it does is it drives us to worship and glory of him. It doesn't mean like, woe is me. It's like, whoa, he, he, Christ died for that and he's forgiven me of that and he doesn't hold that against me? Praise be to God. See the change, when you look at it through the lens of the gospel, how do we view our unbelieving neighbors, friends, and family? Do we see them as enemies? Or do we recognize them that we too were once in the same place? We were natural people who could not understand the gospel message. Do we recognize that their greatest need is Christ do we see them as people who are are lost that but for the grace of god so go i do we pray for them that god would send his spirit to them and save them do we view the people around us with the lens of the gospel Do we view the events of the world around us as uh, what's going on and get discouraged? World War III, I don't know how many times I've heard that in the last week. We're, We're on the steps of World War III. Well, we might be. No one knows but God. So when we see the things that are happening in the world around us, whether it's in Israel or in Russia or in Europe or even like in our own neighborhood or in our own towns, our own country, Do we see those events and we get discouraged or do we recognize that an unbelieving natural world is going to act according to their nature and that their greatest need is Christ? Do you know what would solve the conflict in Israel right now? Is if all the Palestinians and all the Israelites believed in Jesus. Now I know that's idealistic, I understand, okay, But that's what they need. They need Christ. How do we view our church family? Are we like the uh, church in Corinth where we allow our preferences to control us? We divide. Maybe we don't leave the church, but maybe friendships are broken or divided or changed because, you know, I don't know, wore the wrong shoes, color a carpet? You know, you listen to this teacher and I listen to this teacher, so I don't trust you anymore? Or do we see our church family through the mind of Christ, through the lens of the gospel, desiring to know only Christ and Him crucified, showing one another the grace and mercy that He showed us when He died upon the cross? And we talked about divisions within the church. Divisions are not always a bad thing. They're not always a bad thing. But all too often in churches, divisions, they're silly. They're silly. Because we forget to view life through the gospel message, through the cross, through Christ crucified. The reality of our identity as the church, whether you're a little kid, whether you're 90 years old or older, if you're a believer in Christ, the truth is our identity is found in Him. We are His people. We are the church of God. And so we have the mindset of Christ. We have the mindset of the Lord who sacrificed Himself to save us. And so my, my cry for myself and for us as a church, and I think, I think this is the, the call for, for, from, Paul, from Paul to the church in Corinth too, may the cross of Christ be central in our lives and in our minds as his people. And so easily we become distracted. So easily we get caught up in our, our own preferences, our own desires so often we get distracted by the enemy or by an unbelieving world that is losing their ever-loving mind because they don't have control over things, but we know the one who is in control and we know the solution and the answer is Christ. And so are we willing, are we willing to make the sacrifice to live as Christ lived? wherever that may be and however it may be where we're at. But may the cross of Christ and Him crucified be central, central to us as we strive to be faithful to Him as His people. Father, I pray for Your strength for us as a church. The things of this world can become overwhelming. that friends and neighbors family members who are lost father they are the nat- they, they think naturally they they don't understand the gospel they can't understand the gospel and i pray father you would break our hearts for them that we would not that we would view them through their greatest need father through the gospel that you would provide opportunities for us to share the gospel that you would remind us of who we are that as a church we would be unified together under your gospel that we would be united in having the same mind father that we that we would examine each other not through our own selfish personal worldly lens, but instead through the lens that you have given us, through the eyes that you have given us, because you dwell within us through your spirit, Father. Father, we glorify you, we praise you, but we ask, we ask for strength as your people to live this passage out, that we would no longer be spiritually infantile, but Father, that we would be spiritually mature and growing and wrestling with your word and with your truths, knowing that you will teach us and you will show us. But let it not just be a knowledge, Father, that we have in our minds, but it's something we live out. Let us see what you see, Father. We ask this, we beg this of you in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our final song together?